Good evening, and thank you for having me. I was born into a Muslim family, brothers and sisters. I was born in the Islamic Republic of Iran, a very Iranian country that we are praying for tonight as part of our prayers, and I was born into a Muslim family in that Iranian Islamic Republic. Not only that, I was the only son in my family, and so it would be a burden on me to carry on Islam in my family as the only son. That responsibility would fall to me. Oops. <laughs> now, I took it very seriously, but what happened? How is it that I stand here before you as your brother in Jesus with a Bible? Tonight, I'll share with you that story, and alongside it, or I should say, I'll share with you a sermon alongside it, that story. The sermon will be out of Matthew 4, if you wish to follow along. <clears throat> as you turn to Matthew 4, I'll give you a little more background. Growing up in the Islamic Republic of Iran, I was a young boy. We left by the time I was five, and so I don't remember a whole lot, but I have one very distinct memory. It was a terrifying memory, perhaps one I'll never forget. It was of darkness, darkness. I remember we sat in darkness. Now, of course, being Muslims in my family, there's a spiritual darkness there for sure, outside of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Everything else would be darkness. But the darkness I'm describing was actually physical darkness. One of my earliest memories as a child in the Islamic Republic of Iran is hearing a siren that to you would sound like a tornado siren or a storm siren. And that siren would blare. My sisters and I would hear it. We'd be terrified. We would look at one another in fear. My parents were working, and we would hear a commotion in the apartment building because other people had heard the siren. We would open the door to the apartment, and we would see in the stairwell, in the stairway, that everyone was coming out of their apartments, running down the stairs. And we would follow the adults, and we would run after them, and we would all go into the basement of the building, and we would turn off all the lights to the building on our way down, sit in the basement, light a candle, and sit in darkness, waiting for the bombing to end. It was the Iran-Iraq War. At that time, Saddam Hussein was bombing my hometown, the city of Tehran. There are many Iranians living in your city and in Los Angeles that probably originated out of that same city and are here among you today. And so while we sat in a physical darkness waiting for bombing to end, there was also a spiritual darkness there too, wasn't there? If you examine the Iran-Iraq war, Iraq is a predominantly, somewhat majority, Shiite country, Shiite Islam. Iran is a majority Shiite Islam country, vast majority. The Iran-Iraq war was literally Shiite Muslims killing Shiite Muslims. We sat in darkness, and we needed to see a great light. In John, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus will begin his ministry to those who sit in darkness. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus has come to those who sit in darkness. And so the next verse tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is where the salvation story of all Gentiles begins in evangelism. By the mouth of the king himself, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There he is the king, the only begotten son of God, the holy one, and he himself will preach, repent. And we are charged to do the same today as his followers, as his disciples, to preach the same gospel to those who are here sitting in darkness, that they may avail to that gift of the great light, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. But how will we do that? And at this point, it is the king who is doing the ministry at this point in the Gospels. And what is amazing to me is that at this point, in verse 17, when the preaching begins, Jesus is not alone in this labor. Sure, there's human help. We're going to talk about that. But consider what there is considering God in the labor in this preaching. We know from Matthew chapter 3, that Jesus has just received the Spirit of God. First, he was born by it. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then, he's been baptized in Matthew 3. And when he had been baptized, verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So this preacher, our Savior, has the Holy Spirit when he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so do you have the Holy Spirit to help you preach. Now he was given the Holy Spirit without limit, the scriptures tell us. And even just Jesus and the Spirit, they're not alone either in this preaching. Verse 17 in, John, in, in Matthew 3 said, And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so when Jesus preaches in verse 17, it is the Father in heaven with his blessing and his orchestration and his plan, being pleased in the Son who is preaching, who is filled with the Spirit to no limit. Talk about an unstoppable force. The Trinity is now laboring in two perfect cohesive togetherness a son preaching on earth with the Spirit and the Father with him from heaven. 
And so this Jesus preaching this message at this point is unstoppable. I think the Pharisees didn't realize that quite yet. However, what's amazing to me is that he's unstoppable, and this is all of God laboring, that he will not do the work alone, though he very well could. He will call men to follow him. And this is intimately intertwined with my testimony of how I would come to faith. And if you examine your own testimony, you'll probably find it somewhere in there too. It's because Jesus called someone to follow him more than someone, his followers, and they would preach once he had ascended. And that would go all the way through the family tree of God, if you will, spiritually speaking, as others would be grafted in, till you would hear the gospel from one of his followers. But who would follow him? We know there would be the 12. We're going to look at that. And before we look at this, I want to share with you an observation of who is not called to follow. Jesus would not, though he's God, he would not go after Caesar. Though that could have been very efficient to have a king on your side, an emperor. Jesus will not go to Herod. He wouldn't go to Archelaus. That would have been pretty efficient to have legions on your side, armies, chariots, writers, poets, the gifted, those who are even wealthy. He would instead call mere fishermen. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. Simon called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Jesus calls the lowly. These people would have smelled of fish. Very little other qualifications, if any. And God qualified them for the greatest ministry this side of eternity. What's amazing is this command and this promise, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, extends to you today. Now I... And for the most part, a dispensationalist. I'm not confused. However, I have studied the Bible. This command of follow me would also be shared by another individual to the church in the church age. It would be Paul the Apostle. In 1 Corinthians 4, he would say, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me, Paul would say. And again, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul would explain why we should be followers of him. Be ye followers of me, Paul would say, even as I also am of Christ. And so we know that the command to follow Jesus is relevant to you today as church members. And if the command is relevant, how much more the promise through the goodness of God that if we do follow Jesus, he, he himself will make of us fishers of men. How did that impact me? Well, 
That was a pretty impossible fish, let me tell you. Born into a Muslim family. Remember Paul's boasts in, in Judaism? Oh, I could boast in Islam. Now, these boasts are no good. But this is how impossible a fish I was. Born in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Born into a Muslim family. Born into a family who my mother, her maiden name was Muhammadi. Very proud Muslim family. Born as the only son with the responsibility of Islam, and if not, that wasn't worse enough and bad enough to make matters worse. Born also as a distinctly proud Persian Iranian. Oh, the pride. Who would lead me to Christ? How would that happen? Here's how it would happen. Through followers, through fishermen, through lowly, lowly saints, just like you. As God would have it, we would in time leave the Middle East. We would come to the United States in time. Eventually, we would immigrate to the United States, and we wouldn't settle down in the Midwest where I could grow up a humble Midwestern boy. We would settle down in New York where I could grow up a proud New Yorker. So I became a proud New York Iranian Muslim Persian. And then matters got worse. I went to private school and became a proud private school fish. And then I dropped out of private school about a semester before graduation. I got recruited, and it was an opportunity I took to go work on Wall Street. So I became a proud New Yorker, Iranian, Persian, Wall Street fish. Help me, God. As I study my story, I could almost be fooled into thinking God did not care about this one soul. But I'm convinced it's quite the contrary. He's not afraid how scary the fish is or how impossible it is. And for his glory, he'll let the odds mount against him so that when he saves, all the more he will be glorified and worshipped. Here's what happened. I started working on Wall Street, and I was all kinds of fish. I was an Iranian fish, Muslim fish, Persian fish, Wall Street fish. And my personal goal for me was not only to carry on Islam in the family, but to become the wealthiest Muslim that had ever lived. Oh, that's... It's hard to reconcile that with the kingdom of heaven, right? Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that is how I, I began. And when I started work on Wall Street, my dreams were within grasp, and I was excited. I began in October of 2007, and I want to encourage you that God is sovereign, and his providence is everywhere. The timing of God was perfect. As I began on Wall Street in October of 2007, so did the financial meltdown that would cease me from realizing my plans and hopes for myself. Isn't that amazing? As I tell you the story, friends, I hope you're already making the connection that this is to encourage you with the fish in your life that God has put in your life for good reason, for the reason of salvation, for the same message to be preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at this point, he's ascended at the right hand of God. And so what happened? I started on Wall Street, and so did the meltdown. That was the peak of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And from that point on, I had friends, maybe family, tell me, Ali, you started on Wall Street, and everything started to go sour. This has to do with you. What did you do? Did you trip over a cord, unplug a computer, do something? Is this a fat finger error on a keyboard? Did you sell everything? I said, no, this has nothing to do with me, I told these people. 
but no matter what, the meltdown would get worse. And this was a problem because I was there, my dreams were within grasp, and yet they were evaporating before my eyes. Now my bosses on Wall Street, they liked me, and I liked them. After all, they were my hopes to realizing my dream. And so they would tell me everything I wanted to hear. They'd say, Ali, you show a lot of promise. You show a lot of promise as a trader. Stick around, Ali. They would tell me this phrase over and over again. There's a lot of money to be made. Stick around. And that's what we wrestle with as we do evangelism, serving the Lord Jesus, and we see him work, as we wrestle with the promises the world is giving to fish. The American dream. There's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of this to be done, that to be done. When, in fact, the world is perishing. And so they would promise me all this. But the thing about the world is they cannot deliver. They cannot. So what would happen? I would be unable to come to riches. I would eventually, after six or seven months of trying, I would leave Wall Street on my own accord because the meltdown got bad. Somebody gave me a piece of advice, not my boss, someone who had no financial interest in my life. While my bosses said, stick around, there's a lot of money to be made, someone else came into my life and he said, run for your life. Get out of here. We don't know how bad this meltdown will be. This is a bloodbath. He said, just leave Wall Street, go work anywhere else in the financial industry, and come back when the dust settles. I said, that seems like good advice. So I, I said, but who will hire me? I dropped out of school to come work here. I don't have a degree. I was going to be a fish out of water, lost. And he told me, he said, well, why don't you just put in applications and see who will hire you? So I put in a bunch of applications, and I submitted my resume, on which was a non-completed non uncompleted college degree. I looked at that. I said, no one will hire me. I put in that application, and I put in a few more. And I got a phone call the very next day from a company, a brokerage firm, out in Omaha, Nebraska. They called and they said, are we speaking to Ali so-and-so? I said, yes, that's right. They said, you put an application. And I said, oh, I did. Well, you guys are fast. And he said, yes, well, we're looking at your application and we're seeing, and I maybe interrupted him and said, uh, you're seeing I didn't complete my degree. I know it's a problem. They said, no, we're seeing here that you work on Wall Street. And we're willing to interview you just for that. But if we do hire you, you would have to leave Wall Street and New York, and you'd have to come out here to Omaha, Nebraska to work for us. I said, sure, that's no problem. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if I fully realized where Omaha was. <laughs> you know, the mind of a New Yorker is that you have New York and you have LA and everything in between is flyover country. That was the arrogance I was operating under. They did their phone interviews, they hired me, and I flew into Omaha, Nebraska. And I got off the plane with the odds stacked against me, or I should say the odds stacked against the gospel. I got off the plane in Omaha, Nebraska, upset that I even had to be there, unwilling to make friends with anybody, a proud Persian, Iranian, New Yorker, Wall Street guy, landing in Omaha, Nebraska among humble, lowly Christians and Midwesterners. Help me, God. What would happen? God would happen. When it gets tough and impossible, I'm convinced he gets more interested. Here's what happened. God did it, and he did it with a sense of humor. 
I noticed someone while I was working at this brokerage firm in Omaha, I was a new hire and they had hired other people to work at the same time they'd hired me. There was a whole classroom of new individuals hired. There was about 2,000 people in that company. I started working and this other, this classroom was full of other individuals and I was ignoring them for the most part because I was a New Yorker. And so I wasn't to fraternize and commingle with Midwesterners in my arrogance. So how would, any, how would I hear anyone preach the gospel? How would that work? Well, God is the God of the impossible. Here's what would happen. I started priding myself on being better dressed than some of those Nebraskans. Well, better dressed than pretty much all of them I was at the time. And I wasn't dressed as nice as I am tonight, just out of a personal conviction and reverent fear for the pulpit. But back then, though I wasn't dressed half as nice, I had ten times the pride. And I was looking down at all these Nebraskans saying, I'm better dressed than these people. I know it because... I know, secretly, they're all probably farmers. Yeah, and I'm camp coming here from New York. So I was ignoring them, my nose in the air everywhere I went. I'm lucky I didn't fall into a manhole and perish in darkness. But I noticed someone in that new hire classroom. And I noticed, well, I thought to myself, who's this guy? He was dressed better than me. And I took note of that as a fish. This was a lure that I saw. A glimmer in the water. Who is this? And I said, what's going on here? I came from New York, the cutting edge of fashion. And here some farmer's kid is dressing better than me. And that bothered me. Seriously bothered me. That's the thing about proud people is the simplest things will just bother them. Who cares? We would think, right? Oh, I care. And so I said, this isn't going to happen twice. This is an affront to my pride as a New Yorker. And so I left work, and eventually the next day when I came back, I dressed better, hoping to be better dressed than him, and there he was again, better dressed than me. And this would go on day after day, and it would eat a hole in my head. Oh, my pride was being hurt. I'm, I thought to myself, I'm losing to this guy, and he doesn't even know there's a competition. It's bad. Eventually, I looked at him one day. I remember this. I remember I looked at him, his, his purple or pink shirt, his, his belt, his pants, his shoes, the whole outfit. The color coordination was perfect. I looked at him and I said, don't let it bother you so much, Ali. No straight guy can dress that well. <laughs> I said, there's no way this guy's straight. And so what was my thinking? Now, we know we preach the gospel to all sinners. They re all sinners have a chance to repent, believe, or fail to the gift of eternal life, and God will show them in their area of sin how to repent and live in newness of life. But as a Muslim, oh, they don't preach the gospel to homosexuals. First of all, they don't even preach the gospel. As a Muslim, I said, I'm going to write him off as a homosexual because then he counts as nothing. In the Middle East, Muslims kill homosexuals. That was my thinking. Don't let it bother you. He's probably gay. And so one day I came out of the cafeteria, and I had my tray. I was still a new fish out in Nebraska. And I came out of the cafeteria, and I saw that individual sitting by himself, eating. And I said, he's by himself. I'm going to find out what this guy's story is. So I went up to his table, and I said, can I join you for lunch? He said, please, sit down, absolutely. I sat down, and I started eating my lunch, and I was watching this guy like a hawk. 
and I was watching his mannerisms closely and what he was doing. If he was going to act gay, I was going to maybe run away. I don't know what I was planning. But I was watching him, and then it dawned on me. He's not eating during the lunch hour. He's reading. I said, hey, uh, what are you reading? What is that? He had two books. One was closed. The other was open on top of the closed one. He was reading two books. He was studying something. He said, I'm glad you asked what I'm reading. These are books about evangelism. I said, what's that? Oh, the would that I would have known what that was. You see, what happened was this man was a fisherman. And what was he studying? Evangelism. Could we define that as the fishing of men? Would Jesus define it as the fishing of men? He was a fisherman studying the fishing of men, and your God in his infinite sovereign power took me from New York into Nebraska and right into his net. Who could do that but our Jesus? Unbelievable. I said, what's evangelism? Well, I was caught in his net. And what brought me there? The way he dressed. You see, I'm not trying to get you to dress like me tonight. Sure, we dress for modesty and this is important. However, I'm trying to get you to realize that the hobbies you have been given, the interests you have, his was dressing nice. The places you shop, the clubs you're a member of, even the bus stop or public transportation you use, whatever you do, however you spend your time, these interests are shared oftentimes with fish. Fish are at that grocery store. Fish are at that bus stop. Fish are everywhere you go. Do you have your net out? Your God is so sovereign. He puts the fish in your life, I believe, every day. Are we aware to it? And so what happened? This individual's name, what was it? Well, God has a sense of humor. His name was Thomas. One of the same names as the original 12 followers. And if you haven't figured it out by now, he's not the least bit gay, not at all. He just dresses nice. That's one of his interests. To this day, Thomas dresses better than me. My wife and I will go out to dinner with Thomas and his wife, and I'll look at him and I'll say, you've done it again. And his wife will say, I love it. <laughs> That's Brother Thomas for you. It's just his interest. What's your interest? And are you talking to fish there? Still, how would I as a devout Muslim, Persian, New York, Wall Street guy come to faith in Christ? It would take more than losing to a dressing competition for me to repent. And so what would happen? Well, the whole idea of catching fish is that we must focus on these two words, follow me. We must study the life of Jesus, study the life of Paul who said, be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. And we must emulate the life of Paul and the life of Jesus, following Jesus through his examples and his disciples. The entire rest is not our responsibility. Your part is to follow to do all those that are entailed with following. Jesus' part is the entire rest of this sentence. I will make of you fishers of men. And the beauty about this command, follow me, it entails something about Jesus. That he will lead. Follow me. If I were to tell you follow me tonight and I were to stand here, you would say, 
this guy we've invited is crazy. But if I said, follow me, and I got into my car, you'd get into your car and you'd follow. Jesus says, follow, it means he will lead. He's not crazy, not in the least. He's God. And so, how would Thomas lead me to Jesus? Well, he would follow. God would lead. Here's what happened. Thomas would come up to me just following, by faith, trusting that Jesus was going to lead him. He would come up to me and he would be led of the Lord in what he would say. One of the first times he came up to me, he came up to me. We were practically still strangers. He came up to me. He must have been praying for me. He came up to me and he said, Ali, I said, yes. He said, you know, Ali, I hardly know you, but already I like you, man. And I thought to myself, I like me too. I thought to myself, these Nebraskans are beneath me, but perhaps maybe I'll entertain this one individual. He and I, after all, agree that I'm awesome. <laughs> and that was my sin, wasn't it? Self-love, pride. Would that I have known, despite all my dressing, I was naked in my transgressions and shame. Thomas came up to me and said, I like you. How could he do that except that he's following Jesus, who loves sinners and died for them at the rightly appointed time? He said, I like you, and then he said, he paid me a compliment. He said, and in fact, Ali, I like this about you. I, I, I think you're a man of principle. I think in what little I know about you, you appear to be someone to whom right and wrong matter to. He had no training on how to witness to Muslims, but if you've ever studied Islam, oh, he hit a nerve, didn't he? He hit a pressure point. Muslims believe through right and wrong they will earn their way to heaven. When he said that, I thought, well, you're right. Right and wrong do matter to me. And then he said, I thought so. You know, Ali, you would appreciate what I have to share with you here more than most people I know because you're a man of principle. I said, I probably would, Thomas. And then he, I said, what is it? And then he would quote the scriptures. He would care for me, love me in his following of Jesus. He would pay me a compliment and then he would cut me to the heart with the word of God when I let down my guard. And I can't tell you how many times I fell for that trap. I fell for that lure. It's almost like if we follow Jesus and we have our nets out and lures and fishing lines out, it's almost like fish will bite again and again. Here's something that's interesting to me. I don't think Thomas ever realized it. He was so wrapped up in his following of Jesus, which is a compliment, not an offense to him. However, I don't realize if, I don't know if Thomas ever realized, but the pattern of what he did, caring for me enough to come to preach and paying me a compliment, then telling me about the message through God's word, is the same exact pattern given to Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 16. I'm sorry, 17. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He has come to Greek and Roman idol worshipers. Utter sin in their idolatry, and he pays them a compliment. In my flesh and in my legalistic thinking of my flesh. If I heard Paul say that and I was there, I would have said, Paul, Brother Paul, you need to take a seat. You've blown it. You've complimented them in their idolatry. 
And yet this was the pattern that Jesus led Paul to do. He pays a compliment and the entire rest of it, if you read it, he goes right into the gospel. He followed Jesus. He cared enough to go to these sinners to preach. He found something to pay a compliment to them. Even their idolatry, I perceive in all things you're very religious, a compliment. And then he says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Then he found the bridge through the statue of the unknown God to preach the gospel. If the liberty of the Holy Spirit and God's way gives liberty enough to Paul through the statue of the unknown God, how many ways will God give you liberty to preach the gospel? And so Thomas was given liberty through my pride, through my pride, which is remarkable, for God is not in the thoughts of the proud, but he's trying to save them. And, he, and God would build that bridge. Thomas would pay me compliments. I would say, oh, thank you, thank you. And he would pay me compliments, and I loved it. I'd be all buttered up. And then he would cut me to the heart with the word of God. I fell for it every time. And eventually, I got offended. Is that going to happen as we preach? You bet. We follow Jesus. They were offended at him. And a master is greater than his servant. A servant not greater than his master. They maligned him. They will malign us. I got offended eventually at Thomas's preaching. And I eventually I told him, I said, Thomas, listen, listen. I'm going to tell you something I don't usually tell Christians. I like you, Thomas, so I'm going to tell you this. Why did I like him? Because he loved me. Isn't that interesting? And I said, so I'm going to do you a favor because I like you, Thomas. See, I think, you know, this message you're telling me, I don't think I need to believe on Jesus. I think I'm okay with Allah through Muhammad and the message of the Quran. I think that's sufficient. I think it's actually the same God, Thomas, and I think I can go to heaven through the message of the Quran, to the same God you worship. I just don't think Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's the problem. That's what makes it a different God, is that Jesus is God, isn't he? And I said, so Thomas, because I like you, and I think you don't realize this, I want to show you, I want to do you a favor, Thomas. I want to show you you're wrong about your Jesus and your Bible. And so I'm willing to test this that you talk about and preach. And I'm gonna, I want to test it and show you you're wrong. And then I realized my mouth had outrun me. And I said, uh, can, I, can I do like a 30-day free trial test? And Thomas was bothered by that. He went away bothered. It was one of the few times I saw that man go away discouraged. But he came back encouraged. It's almost like he was following a master fisherman who sent him back with a more perfect way or more perfect answer. He came back to me and he said, Ollie, I've been thinking about what you said. You see, Ollie, I know you, you're not cheap talk like most people. I said, that's right. Thomas, man is only as good as his word, Thomas. I was digging myself into a hole. And Thomas said, right, right. And so when you say you want to test my God, you're not kidding around. I said, I mean it. I'm trying to do you a favor here. And, Tom, and he was trying to do me a favor, wasn't he? And I said, so Thomas, there's no way I can test your God. I don't understand. I, I can't do a free trial, you said. And he said, well, here's the problem, Ali. The Bible has a theme. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Man cannot test God, Ali. It's the other way around. And, and you're a man of principle. I think you'll enjoy that. And I said, oh. He said, but I found something for you. And by the way, the whole 
It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It's just in the chapter previous. Verse 7, Jesus quotes it to the devil. Thomas quoted it to me. And so here's what happened. Thomas said, but I found something, Ali. And it's just a few pages before where we are in Malachi. And Thomas said, listen to this, Ali. This is the only place I was able to find for you, Ali, where you can test God. I listened to Thomas, and he said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. <coughs> but you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. Some translations say, and test me now in this. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Oh, windows of heaven open, a blessing poured out. I was thinking as I was hearing these words, what a beautiful blessing. And I thought, my Wall Street ears heard that. And I said, yeah, Thomas, that's the test. I'm interested in this windows of heaven open, a blessing poured out, room not enough to receive it. After all, I felt I was under a curse. When I showed up on Wall Street, so did the meltdown. And so I said, so this test, I want to do this test, Thomas. I, and I thought to myself, room not enough to receive it. My bank account, when I opened my bank account, they didn't give me an upper limit of how much money I can put in there. I thought to myself, like a Wall Street, I was like, I've plenty of room to receive it, right? And so I said, so Thomas, this is the, the good test. I need you to tell me what this word is, though. Bring all the teeth, the teeths into the storehouse. I said, I, is this like a tooth fairy thing because I've got my adult teeth now? Is this too late for me for this? He goes, no. This has nothing to do with babies. Now, as fishermen and fisherwomen, it's incumbent upon you and I to explain the most fundamental things of the faith. And, though, and so he did. He said, this is the tithe. It was given in the law to Israel. They're to give 10% of their first fruits and their crops to God. It was to acknowledge that it was all his anyway, Ali. It's all God's, isn't it? I said, that's right. And so he said, so this is 10%. He said, you, Ali, you're a financial guy. Your crop is money. So if you wanted to do this and test God according to this word in Malachi, for you it would be 10% of your paycheck. And I said, well, who do I give it to? He said, give it to a Christian church or charity. You could even do a Jewish one. This is the book of Malachi. I said, you go to a Christian church? He said, yeah. I said, I'll give the money to you. And he said, no, don't give it to me. I said, well, I'll give it to you, and you put it in, in the money account at your church. He said, why don't you come put it in the money account at our church? Brilliant, huh? As you're listening, you're possibly beginning to think, this Thomas, I want to meet him. He's like a rock star evangelist, if there ever was one. If he heard me say that, he would burst out laughing. He's just a follower. It's all about Jesus who leads him. He had no training on how to witness to Muslims. He just knew he's to follow. And so what happened I said, oh, so I have to come to your church and 
put the money there. Okay, well, uh, I'll do that then, but I, I don't have a car. I need a ride. And he said, I'll give you a ride. You see, I had moved from New York, where I was working and living at the time in New York City. I had moved from there. When I left Wall Street, very briefly, I went to my parents. I actually left a car there, and I went to Nebraska. I flew there. In New York City, I would never keep my car there usually. I wouldn't keep it there because I learned the tickets, the parking, it's a nightmare. You guys deal with that in L.A. And so when I came to Nebraska, I said, Omaha is a city, so I won't bring my car. I'll use their metro and underground subway. <laughs> and that is as funny as it sounds. <laughs> and so I had arrived in Omaha, and I needed a ride anywhere I needed to go. Anywhere that I needed a car for, I didn't have a car. Now, thankfully, I lived near where I worked, and there was a grocery store near there, too. But there's other things you need to do, and I needed a car. Thomas to the rescue. You see, as we follow Jesus, we have to do something. Serve. And sometimes you'll be called to serve someone who's proud, arrogant, prideful, Jesus served people like that too, even sinners. I heard a pastor preach on this. He said, we serve the unservable, and we love the unlovable, and we do this, enduring all things, and we earn the right to offend them with the gospel. Isn't that true? It's the one offense we're allowed. And I needed a ride, and Thomas would give me a ride and serve me. When somebody gives you a ride, you have to listen to them. You're stuck in the car with them. You could be the dirtiest fish on the planet. You're stuck in that net of that automobile. And you have to listen to whatever they say. Doesn't matter how bad you don't like it. After all, what's the alternative of what you hear? To open the door and to bail into oncoming traffic? Nobody's going to do that. And so Thomas would preach whenever I was in his car. And when he wasn't preaching, he had his radio on, listening to songs and melodies about Christ. And he gave me a ride to his church. And we got out. We went in. He said, tonight we're going to sing songs to our Jesus Ali. Why don't you just sit there in the sanctuary and you don't have to do anything. We're going to go and sing. And then when we're done singing... I'll come, and you'll have an opportunity to do the tithe. I said, fair enough. I sat down in the auditorium or sanctuary of that church, and they went up and they sang songs. They made melody in their hearts to their Lord Jesus. And it, friends, was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. I would have every sinner experience it. To go into where the believers are gathered in the name of Jesus, where there he is in the midst of two or more that are there, where there they are filled with the Spirit, making melody in their hearts, singing psalms, speaking to one another in spiritual songs, and experience the presence of the Lord that's there. After all, there he is in the midst of them. And sinners and fish can tell there's something different about these people and what they have. I listened to their singing and I couldn't believe it. 
And of course, I didn't have discernment as a fish. I didn't have the Holy Spirit. And I failed and grasped to put it into earthly terms. And I struggled. I listened to their singing. I said, this is amazing. And I finally said, I can't summarize it any other way. These few individuals on singing here, they must be the most gifted musicians in all the world. That's what this must be. They're perhaps no more gifted than you or me. And so... I looked around that auditorium, that sanctuary. There was only one other person there. And as a Wall Street guy, I thought, this is such a shame. They should have invited everyone to see this concert. This is like the world's greatest concert. They could have sold tickets to this event, you know. Perhaps I had thoughts like these. That's a fish. And here's what happened. After that singing, Thomas and his friends came down from there. And they came and they, they put some chairs around there near where I was sitting. They gathered around me. They were going to have their uh, post-worship meeting, post-singing meeting, where they were going to talk about a few items on the agenda, perhaps pray, just as you dear saints have. And Thomas came up to me after that singing, and he, he perhaps maybe noticed that I was amazed. He came up to me and he said, Hey, Ali, what do you think of that? before anyone else came close. So I had a chance to just, between me and him, tell him what I really thought. Did I? No. There's something about fish, you see. They don't encourage fishermen. Isn't that true of fish? They don't encourage fishermen. When was the last time a fisherman came from the shore and says, look at all the fish I caught. They were cheering me on today. Or a fisherman comes from the shore empty-handed. You say, what happened? You were there out there for hours. He said, I showed up. The fish were upset to see me, so I came straight home. Fish don't encourage fishermen. That's part of the game. And I didn't encourage Thomas. Despite all that amazing splendor in the worship and the majesty of the God that they were saying to that evening, all I told Thomas was, and when he asked, what did you think of that? All I said was, All right, hey, hey, Thomas, I'll give you this. You didn't tell me. You and your friends can sing. You got me there. You didn't tell me that. There's this maintaining this facade of superiority all the while, even though inside there's turmoil and shakenness as God is shaking these fish. And so what happened? They sat down, and they had their meeting there. And after... The meeting was coming to a close. They were still sitting. And all of a sudden, someone was passing around a tray or a money bag. I forget which it was. And I looked at that being passed around, and I thought, what is that? That's weird. And as it came to me, I looked at Thomas. As they passed me that money bag or tray, I looked at Thomas. And Thomas looked at me, and he did one of those wink, wink. This is your moment, Ali. Wink, wink. And I thought, oh, this is the tithe. This is where the money must go. So I reached into my coat pocket. I took out an envelope that I had 10% of my paycheck calculated to the penny. And I, and I was pretty cheap. It was probably after tax. And I, I, put that, I put that into the money bag. And as that money bag continued to go, I'll confess something to you tonight. I said to myself, that's the end of this Jesus business. In time, I'll go to this Thomas. I'll say, what did that word say, Thomas? I'm telling you, this Bible, Thomas, I don't think it's true. I'm a Muslim. I, I'm telling you, I don't think it's true because I gave the whole tithe and the windows of heaven did not open. 
Oh, after that, we, when I went home, Thomas dropped me off in my studio apartment, and I was counting the days. Though there's no set day, I was thinking, maybe two weeks. Maybe I'll wait a month. Then I'll go to this Thomas. I'll say, you see, I've done you a favor. It's cost me 10% of my paycheck, but I've shown you that you're confused about this Jesus, that he's not God. Do you think I ever got the chance? No. And you know what's amazing? Thomas, when he told me the tithe was 10%, he even said to me, he said, but you know, Ali, you might not be ready to do it to the letter of the law, but that's okay. You see, my Jesus, in this day and age, if you want to test him with $20 according to this promise, just $20, Ali, I have faith enough that you'll see the windows of heaven open a little bit and a blessing poured out such that you'll know it's from my God and my Jesus. So he even was willing to say, we're not in the age of the law, but apply the principle and see my God work anyway. That fisherman had faith, didn't he? And there was a sense of humor of the Lord in this. There's a lot of funny parts in my testimony. They weren't funny at the time necessarily, but they're funny today. You see, fish don't talk to people. Fish don't talk to fishermen. But after they're caught and they're being cleaned, I'm a caught fish tonight, and tonight I speak. And I can tell you before I was caught what I was thinking. And we can look at it now and laugh and see the sense of humor of the Lord. Why did I not do $20? And why did I do the whole tithe? In fact, when Thomas told me, you could give just $20 and test my God, my Jesus, I looked at him and I said, $20. I'm a Muslim. There's 10% for Jews or Christians. It'll be 10% for me. There's pride there. But I didn't tell Thomas something very funny. My mother had raised me. Remember my mother? Last name, Mohammadi. She had raised me to be such a proud Muslim. She told me, my son, you have to be an exemplary Muslim. In fact, you should lead Muslims by example. When you grow up and you make money, you give one-third of your income to Allah and Islam. And that's a lot. And by the time you pay Uncle Sam and pay Allah, you hardly have much left, right? So I'd never really done that. It was too heavy a burden for me to carry. But this tithe thing, 10%. Thomas told me about the 10% and he said, $20. I said, no, no, we don't need $20. I said, 10% it'll be for me. What I didn't tell him was what I was really thinking as a fish. I get to test Thomas's God and show him that he's wrong and I get to do it at a discount rate of 10%. That's a good deal. That's what that fish was really thinking. Oh, but fish don't tell you what they're thinking so often, do they? Would that they would. Oh, if they did, it wouldn't be a work of faith for us anymore. We'd be walking by sight, perhaps. And so that's what really happened. I wasn't going to tell him this whole thing. I would have had to have humility to admit I couldn't carry my mom's 30% burden, but I'll try the Christian 10% one at a discount rate. Oh, it would take humility to confess that. I didn't have any. And so I gave the tithe. I went home. I waited as a fish for the time for this fisherman to come and for it to end, that the windows of heaven were not open. But I never got the chance. And what ended up happening, friends, is this. 
As I was waiting, thinking, I gave the 10%, and I can't wait for Thomas to be wrong. It'll be well worth it. I began to realize, wait a minute, I'm broke, and I could use the windows of heaven being opened. But no, Ali, you can't think this way. Thomas must be wrong. Oh, but I need the windows of heaven open. What if they could open? A blessing poured out. What if that word actually could happen? No, don't think this way. Be a strong Muslim. Thomas must be wrong. And I remembered all of a sudden a company out in New York. It was hard to forget about this company. I'd worked for them. They weren't on Wall Street. It was before Wall Street. I'd worked for this company. I'd earned wages for them, and they hadn't paid me. It was about four or $5,000 in unpaid wages. I'd subcontracted for them, and they hadn't paid me. And I'd given up trying to collect it from them. I had filed a case with the New York State Department of Labor, and they hadn't collected it for me. I had called them. I'd sent them a whole file full of evidence so they could collect that money for me. I'd called the New York State Department of Labor. I tried everything in my flesh to get that four or 5000 I told the New York State Department of Labor, what do you need to look at my case? They said, well, you keep calling. We need one more thing from you now. I said, what? And they said, we need you to stop calling us. <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. I'll stop calling, but tell me when to call you. Six months, a year, two years, three years, five years. I couldn't believe what the lady said. She said, maybe never. <laughs> now, I don't want to speak evil of dignitaries and governments. Perhaps the New York State Department of Labor has improved today. But back then, oh, it was dire, at least in my case. I'd given up on that money. And I'd never heard from the New York State Department of Labor. And now I was in Nebraska a fish. A fisherman was fishing, a god was working on me, and I was beginning to swim back and forth between this thought of, I want Thomas to be wrong, but I want the money. If you ever watch fish in a fish tank, that's all they do. They swim back and forth, and you don't know what they're thinking. But be encouraged. God has made fish and directs them even in schools. Children, have you caught any fish? Remember that? He directed a school of fish into their nets. As I went back and forth as a fish swimming around like a mad fish, I want Thomas to be wrong, but I want the 4,000. I want Thomas to be wrong, but I want the four or five grand. I need the money. I want Thomas to be wrong. Oh, I finally landed on this. Okay, I need the money. I need the money. I just need the money. I had worked on Wall Street as a commission-based trader, and because of the meltdown, I hadn't collected a single check. I needed the money here in Nebraska now. I was working an hourly wage. And so here's what happened. I decided it's hopeless, even if I'm willing for Thomas to be wrong, to be right, and for me to be wrong. Even if I'm willing to see the windows of heaven open, it's hopeless. I can't open them. And I've never seen a miracle with my own eyes. It's not going to happen anyway, even if I gave the tithe. And that's what I was hoping. I was hoping Thomas to be wrong. But now I need that money, that four or five grand. And as a sinner, as a fish, I didn't know any better. I said, let me, let me at least go before the God of this Bible. Let me go before the Lord and make him a business deal. And so, how, where would I go to meet the Lord? In the church? Well, as a fish, I had heard one Christian tell another Christian that Christians ought to go into their closet to pray. And I took that literally. I never talked to Thomas about it to find out, oh, do you guys really go in your closets? 
And so when I wanted to meet with your God, your Jesus, I went in my closet in Omaha, Nebraska. I shut the door, and I thought, this is weird, that Christians meet in closets. How come I've never known? So I guess the closet door's shut, and so I've always walked by closed door closets, not knowing there's secretly Christians praying inside. I said, I'm here, though. I need to pray. And I said, God or Lord, I suppose you already know why I'm here. I'm never going to see this money. I've tried everything. So I've decided to give you an offer. If you get this money for me, windows of heaven open, I'll give you half of it. Is that a good deal for you? I hope so. And that was the end of that prayer. Not a fisherman in sight. When the fisherman was there, I was telling him, your God is the same as mine. And when he was absent, in my desperation, I was going to his God and not mine. Isn't that amazing? That week, the phone rang. New York State Department of Labor calling me. Oh, that was a miracle to my ears. And I said, Yes, they said, are you Ali such and such? I said, yes. They said, are you at such and such address in New York? I said, no, I'm not there anymore. They said, where are you? I said, I live in Bellevue, Nebraska. It's just outside of Omaha, Nebraska. And the lady from the New York State Department of Labor said, what are you doing in Nebraska? And I thought she was going to make fun of me. A lot of New Yorkers had made fun of me for leaving the financial capital of the world. And I thought she was going to make fun of me. And I said, well, lady, why, are you, why do you care where I live now? What difference does it make? And she said, well, we need an up-to-date address for you, sir. I said, why? She said, so we can mail you a check. I said, really? I said, I didn't even know you were reviewing my case. Last I talked to you, you said, never call back. And then, but, but I said, wait, wait, wait. Can, can I ask how much it is? It was one of the first things I asked her. Maybe the first. Can, can I ask how much the money is, the check? I was thinking four, maybe five, at the most with interest, five and a half, six. She said, well, here it is, sir. You're getting a check for 8200 and change. At that moment, where I was in that studio apartment, sitting in darkness, where I stood in that apartment, I saw a great light. It was literally a light bulb moment. And the thought that entered my mind is this is the God of the Bible. When they followed Christ, they got to see the light of the world do miracles. And many said, this must be him, the coming Messiah. Here's the thing. Doubt may have crept in on those who witnessed miracles. Well, doubt certainly crept in in my heart. First a light bulb moment, what? And then doubt in that fish's mind. I said, lady, you have the wrong case. They don't owe me $8,000. I've waited all this time. You got the wrong case. She said, let me call you back. She called me back. She said, is this your case number, sir? I said, yes. She says, well, then this is the right case. This is your full name. I said, yes. She said, this is the right case. She said, I fully reviewed your case. 
You were owed this money. You were right. We ruled judgment in your favor. I think he ruled judgment in my favor. And she said, and not only that, we penalized and punished this company. We said, how dare they keep this much money and unpaid wages from one employee or subcontractor? So we punished them with interest and not 2 3% or inflation rate interest. We charged them 18% interest. And sir, the way we do it, we don't charge it on an annual basis. It's interest compounded on a monthly basis. It's like a credit card system, that New York State Department of Labor. And she said, and so you're getting a check for $8,000 and change. This is correct, but we don't have a current address. I said, this is my current address, lady. I never gave that someone my address so quick enough, so fast. She got my address. I got off the phone, and I said, could it be? And indeed it was. In time, a check came in the mail from the New York State Department of Labor. I opened it 8000 and change. I stood there in Omaha, Nebraska, in farmer country, holding the biggest check I had earned in my life or that someone had given me in my life. And the irony was that I had just come from the financial capital of the world, where by my own dire straits as a fish, I had earned nothing. The irony, the power, the sovereignty of God. And yet, despite this miracle, I still would not be saved. How would I be saved? What would happen? And would I tell Thomas about this miracle? We'll discuss that on Sunday with the Lord's help. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the mighty things you do. And really, Lord, our charge is so simple. You've boiled it down to two words so that any, whether smart or lacking intelligence, can just obey. And you give it to the humble, the lowly, the fishermen. Lord, I don't feel myself qualified for the preaching of the gospel. Like many others here, I feel like a lowly fisherman. And thank you for your word that shows these are precisely the types of people you choose. The lowly, the lacking in the particular gifting in areas, lacking money, lacking power like Caesar and Herod. But one thing that we're able to do with your help, we can follow, and it means everything, because you take that obedience and you maketh of us fishers of men. We pray, Lord, that we would be followers, for we know in full faith and assurance you always do your part if we do ours. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.